This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of July 7, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 138 of Defender Radio. Perhaps the most mystic and most feared wild animal in Canada, wolves are making a comeback. Throughout the western United States, wolf populations are beginning to re-emerge after a courageous plan to reintroduce them to Yellowstone National Park in the 1990s. But along with their reintroduction has come ongoing fear, paranoia from ranchers, and the happy trigger fingers of hunters and trappers. Add to that the ongoing persecution of wolves in Canada, and the species is by no means free of their one-time endangered status. But this has also created a unique and historic opportunity to study wolves and how they affect ecosystems. Two recent studies have identified and are extrapolating what is becoming known as the wolf effect. We'll hear from two leading scientists who have examined this phenomenon. First is Dr. Thomas Newsom, who has worked with a team that is exploring how wolf populations affect the populations of foxes and coyotes. Then we'll be joined by Dr. Mark Elbrock, who is part of one of the longest-standing cougar studies in North America and has fascinating details on how wolves are impacting cougar populations and their territory selection. Dr. Thomas Newsom is a research fellow with the University of Sydney and is currently a Fulbright Scholar at Oregon State University and University of Washington. A recent study that Dr. Newsom helped conduct showed the wolf effect across North America by confirming that the ratio between red foxes and coyotes is directly impacted by the presence of wolf packs. Dr. Newsom recently joined us to discuss this study. Um, so why don't we start out, uh, can you tell me a bit about your hypothesis or what you were hoping to find when you began this study? Sure, well we began this study with an interest of looking at the ecological role of top predators and how they can potentially influence lower order predators down the food chain. So there's been a lot of work that's come out of Yellowstone as wolves are reintroduced. Now that wolves are recolonizing um, many more areas of the United States, uh, we're interested in particular how wolves would interact uh, with coyotes and red foxes. And the initial sort of exploration of this actually came from an interest from my background in Australia where there is a, a similar comparative um, system that we're interested in where we were looking at the ecological role of the dingo and whether it can control invasive predators such as the red fox and the feral cat. Uh, so I came over to the United States on a scholarship funded by the Australian American Fulbright Commission, working out of Oregon State University with Professor uh, William Ripple. And really we wanted to tease out these interactions between uh, wolves, coyotes and red foxes. So some of the earlier studies have shown that where wolves persist, that red foxes are outnumbering coyotes, and where wolves are absent, the coyotes are outnumbering red foxes. So this is based on the theory that wolves will suppress coyotes and in turn release red foxes to pop down suppression by coyotes. Okay, so I guess what's the importance of that information? Um, why, 
why would it matter if there are more coyotes or foxes as the the active mesopredator predator in an area? Sure, it has it has a, a suite of implications for um, a number of species, I guess, throughout the food web. Um, obviously, these different predators um, target different types of prey, and the um, with the removal of wolves throughout many areas of the United States, or the historical control of wolves. Kites had dramatically expanded their historical range, and so they were essentially moving into areas where their numbers were either very low or where they were where they were absent previously. And this has implications for the type of prey that they're consuming, because obviously different predators are targeting different sorts of prey. So animals that weren't used to having lots of coyotes around all of a sudden might have lots of coyotes um, predating upon them, and that has a range of implications for uh, conservation and management of of different species. And I imagine that's something that uh, farmers are probably quite interested in as well. Uh, as I'm sure you know, coyotes are often looked at as a pest throughout the United States and Canada, even though they have filled the void of the apex predator that once was the wolf. Um, and I guess uh, I, this really does serve as yet another indication that the reason we have seen such drastic change in that predator population uh, spectrum is because of human activity. And that's something that uh, we constantly talk about at the association. Um, so do, does this really just serve to show that the role of wolves is not just in controlling ungulate populations and small uh, omnivorous mammals, but also in mesopredators? Absolutely. And that's that's backed up by many different studies throughout the world, in fact, that show that top predators can reduce the uh, the predation pressure and the abundances of these lower order predators. But I think your point about uh, humans being implicated in this is really important to highlight because essentially our study was able to look at areas where wolves have been removed and they were removed primarily because of humans. And then we looked in at areas where wolves were present. So in the areas where wolves are present, for example, we looked at uh, historical fur returns dating all the way back to 1919 up through Alaska, the Yukon and Northwest Territories. That's an area where uh, wolves have been consistently present. Red foxes have been consistently present. Uh, but kites have expanded into that region uh, since probably the early 1900s. But in these areas where wolves are present, uh, over these long-term data sets that we looked at, looking at fur return data that we collected, um, red foxes consistently outnumbered uh, coyotes. In contrast, we looked at areas in New Brunswick, Maine, and Nova Scotia, uh, where wolves are absent. And this is quite an interesting data set because we have a time series of coyotes expanding into these regions dating back to about the 1970s. And these data sets, data sets show quite clearly that it only took about 20 to 30 years for coyotes to outnumber red foxes in the absence of wolves. And that's that, that's a very drastic change in a, a, a very short period of time when you consider the, the normal movements of evolution, I would imagine. Sure. I mean, uh, coyotes are actually very similar to a dingo in that they um, have a diverse diet and they're remarkably adaptive. And so um, these animals have adapted to many different systems. They're even um, in high numbers in some of the urban areas throughout the United States. The kites seem to be able to uh, rapidly fill a, a niche that's um, been removed as as wolves have been removed. They've been rapidly able to fill that fill that niche, and they've been rapidly able to disperse and recolonize 
uh, new areas. It's quite a remarkable feat. Now that leads into uh, very much how we're managing wildlife. Um, and I know in the United States that very drastic measures are taken in, in regards to predators such as wolves and coyotes. Uh, in Canada, we see hundreds of thousands, if not millions of coyotes killed every year in what most people call wildlife management attempts, um, or sometimes it's pest control, sometimes it is the fur trade. But we also know that many of these animals, like coyotes, when are when they're pressured by human intervention, actually rebounds their populations to a higher number. Um, is that also part of the whole wolf effect, as it's been demonstrated through your work? Well, I guess the um, the historical uh, control of many of these animals um, is actually the the response by them is can be very similar. But um, kites in particular, um, which are, as I mentioned, similar to dingoes, I can draw upon mostly my experience in Australia where there's been uh, widespread control of both dingoes and red foxes, for example. But unless these control programs are done over very large areas and they're um, very intensive, it's very difficult to um, control these animals because uh, they can rapidly reinvade into vacant areas also, there's some um, theories associated about whether or not control programs can fracture the social structures of some, some of these animals and lead to increases in breeding in the successive years. That leads into what I would consider maybe the most important question of this, both from the concept of true ecosystem management and conservation. If we know that trying to remove coyotes has proved unsuccessful for well over a hundred years in some areas. And uh, I know with dingoes, it's probably a similar history. Would it not make more sense to allow the ecosystem to return to its original equilibrium of having wolves control these populations? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting um, question to ponder, I guess, because obviously we don't have a lot of knowledge and data on um, the the impacts of wolves on ecosystems throughout the areas where they've been sort of absent for about 70 years. But we also have little information about uh, the impacts that wolves are going to cause on human enterprises as they recolonize many of these areas. Um, but we also need to recognize that some of the areas that wolves are recolonizing have been dramatically altered by um, agricultural activities and human encroachment into um, into areas uh, through urban development, so um, whether or not uh, wolves could fulfill that same niche in a in an ideal um, sort of um, wildlife context um, is yet to be seen. But certainly, there would the the studies that uh, the study that we have conducted certainly shows that wolves can exert strong effects on low order predators down the food chain. And so, if wolves are expanding into new areas, and this is to take place then um, certainly our studies would support that occurring. Okay, and for the, the masses, um, because right now your study is circulating largely on the, the scientific forums and uh, magazines and journals after its publication in the Journal, uh, journal of Animal Ecology. For the larger population of people who may not be as involved in science, may not have the, the deeper understanding that many of your colleagues will, what do you hope will come as a result of this data and 
and really the collection of theories that are starting to grow in relation to top-order predators and specifically in North America wolves. Sure. Well, I guess one of the most interesting um, trends that we found in our data set, looking at the fur return data in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, where wolves are in very low numbers or absent in the southern agricultural regions but present in the, in the northern forested regions, we found that there was about a 200-kilometre buffer zone where in that region the coyotes still outnumbered red foxes. So this really suggested that if, if, if people are keen to see or, or if the community wants um, or if there's interest in uh, wolves suppressing coyotes, then this sort of data set um, quite clearly demonstrates that you need lots of wolves occurring over large continuous areas for them uh, to effectively suppress coyotes. Now this might be because coyotes can rapidly invade areas where there are vacant territories or that you just need a lot of wolves to suppress these lower order predators. And I think this has implications for understanding the ecological role of top predators such as the dingo in Australia, uh, where there is a similar debate about whether or not it can control lower order predators. But I think our data set quite clearly shows that you need uh, wolves and dingoes over large areas, large continuous areas, to effectively suppress coyotes. So as wolves are recolonizing the United States, uh, I guess there needs to be a, a look at the areas that are suitable for wolves to recolonize and how many wolves and over what sort of area they're occurring, um, what, how that would translate into, into their ability to uh, suppressed coyotes that people are concerned about. To find out more about Dr. Newsom's study, visit thomasnewsom.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada... We're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. 
With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. Wolves are a top-order predator that have significant impact on entire ecosystems. But how do they influence other predators? In what is becoming known as the wolf effect, many scientists are exploring the fascinating phenomenon. Among them is Dr. Mark Elbrock, a biologist with the Tetan Cougar Project, part of the Panthera Wildcat Conservation Program. A study examining the relationship between cougars and wolves came up with incredible results, and even more questions about how wolves control ecosystems. Dr. Elbrock joined us to provide insight into this study and what it may mean for the future. Uh, obviously, the reason I wanted to talk with you was uh, sort of to start this paper that came out, uh, Home Range Characteristics of a Subordinate Predator, Selection for uh, Refugia or Hunt Opportunity. Uh, that was published in the Journal of Zoology in May. <clears throat> and that uh, paper examines um, one of the, the interesting results, I should say, of that paper was the characteristics between wolves and cougars and how that impacts the home range. Uh, and that's, I guess, becoming known as the wolf effect as it uh, relates to other species as well. So can you tell me a bit about that study and um, what what it means? Sure. Um, well, I'd say that sort of the overarching goal of our research here, which has been going on, I think we're in our 13th year, is to determine whether there is a wolf effect and on the local mountain lion population. And we look at it from various perspectives, space use, including home ranges, foraging, including kill rates and prey selection, um, as well as survivorship. And so this is hopefully one of the sort of building blocks in a larger story that we're trying to tell. But the study began and there were perhaps about oh, between five and ten wolves in the entire study area. And then over the course of the next ten years, they peaked out at about 99 and then have dropped since to about 85. So the wolves now greatly outnumber the mountain lions in the local area by about four times. And yeah, we just wanted to see what's changed for mountain lions. And one of the things that has changed is where they are placing their home ranges. And so this is, you know, one of the things I'll emphasize is scale here. We we haven't looked at what mountain lions are doing inside their, their home ranges. And this is important because when we talk about refugia, um, you know, it's sort of surprising. Some people would say, well, gosh, why aren't mountain lions selecting for refugia? And refugia being a general term for anything that keeps them safe, perhaps forests because there are trees that they can climb, um, perhaps cliffs so that they can hide in the rocks or uh, take these 12 foot leaps that they're famous for and leave a, a chasing wolf at the bottom of the hill where they could never you know, follow. Um, and what we found is at the home range level, they did not select for home ranges that had more cliffs or forests or any of these physical refugia that we, we were kind of expecting that they would do. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not doing that inside their home ranges. And so I just want to make that clear. But what we did find 
as far as refugia is that they were spatially selecting home ranges that were further from known wolf packs than would be expected just given the distribution of wolves on the landscape. And this is really the only form of refugia that they're seeking. They're, they're close to roads, which surprised us because that puts them closer to human hunters. Um, but they are certainly further from, from wolves. And we've now even gone steps further and we found they do the same thing with their dens inside their home ranges. They place their den the furthest they can from the wolf pack. <laughs> That's uh, interesting. So it, it's, it seems like this is a pattern that we'll probably see played out on, on various scales, if you will. So from the tiny scale, meaning what they're doing inside their home range, to larger scales where they're putting their home ranges, and perhaps even on a larger scale, where are mountain lions in general on the landscape as compared to prey and, and competitors. Okay, and I saw an interesting note um, that uh, the males have sp- – I'd, I'd call it significantly larger home ranges than the females at 1.9 to 3.3 times larger. Yeah. Um, how does that impact their, their uh, relationship with wolves? Right. So what's interesting is that because whales are, are wandering so far that, of course, they're moving through wolf pack territory, perhaps even more so than the females are. And, you know, it's what we found in this, you know, in our study is very much supporting what we've thought about mountain lions for years and years and years, decades and decades. And that's that males have larger home ranges and that they tend to seem to be selecting their home ranges based on the distribution or availability of females. That's what their main interest is, is mating opportunities. Whereas females, they seem to be selecting their home ranges based on availability of resources. So how do they sustain themselves? And of course, their dependent kittens, which stay with them up to 18 months is sort of the standard in our study area. So they've got a a family to feed, if you will. And so these females have smaller home ranges, but they're choosing them specifically to access good hunting opportunity. And this is something that we've assumed for many carnivores. And for many, many years, but very few folks have actually been able to show it mathematically. And so that was one of the the little exciting things we thought was cool about the paper is that we were actually able to show with some math that, gosh, it really does appear that females are indeed selecting home ranges where there is the greatest hunting opportunity and more so than males. But the interesting thing is that whereas you have these males wandering large, large areas that are crossing good hunting areas where females are. Bad hunting areas are where they're just traveling between females. Um, and of course, crossing through wolf territories where they might encounter wolves more often than, say, a female. But when you look at the home range as a whole, females are, in fact, probably at greater risk of interactions with wolves because they need to choose their home ranges specifically based on prey availability. And so they're looking for places where there's lots of elk, lots of deer. And of course, these are the very same areas where wolves are looking to set up their territories, where they have lots of elk and lots of deer. And so what we found is that these lions now have to sort of, they have to weigh the pros and cons of each home range. And so they seem to be choosing areas away from wolves, but still that have a lot of prey. So wolves likely get the best territories, meaning the most prey availability, and lions are sort of filling in around them and saying, well, this is great uh, prey availability 
at least in the sense that it's high, but it's giving me a little bit of a buffer away from these wolves. Well, and that, that must say something about their, their reasoning capabilities as sentient beings as well, that they are able to sort of identify all of these different things. I mean, like, uh, when you look at how uh, a squirrel may build its nest, a lot of those factors are in there, but a lot of the time it's also just, here's a good tree. <laughs> right. Um, where, but when you're looking at the, these, uh, these large cats, to me, I, that's the same way you or I would look when we're choosing a home is, you know, where are the most available females um, and where can I get the best food, but also where will I be safest? Correct. And I, I mean, I would say that science supports this over and over again. The, the harder we look at these animals, whether they are squirrels or mountain lions, is that we are over and over again impressed at their decision-making capabilities and sort of the how they weigh risk as well as uh, sort of the benefits, if you will, of resource availability. And that they've shown that from all the way down to kangaroo rats and squirrels all the way up to lions and, and wolves. So um, it's, it's not surprising for me as a researcher at all <laughs> that they do this. And in fact, when you look at um, individuals, it even becomes more apparent because we've seen some females are clearly becoming good at living with wolves. They are maneuvering in these areas where there's lots of wolf activity in ways that keep themselves alive and sometimes even subsidize themselves off wolf kills, which is darn impressive considering that they are definitely at the disadvantage uh, considering they're, they're going up against six to 10 wolves. So, I mean, those, is that higher intelligence? Who knows? Higher creativity? Who knows? But for some reason, some cats seem to do it better than others. Yeah. I, I had a cat who did not understand that she was a tenth of the size of my dog. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I really can't speak entirely to all cats' intelligence. Uh, plus, this is the kind of cat that would, you know, try and catch her own tail. So, anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, great descendants of the lions. Uh, now, one of the the things I find interesting with this, and, and this is uh, akin to a, another interview I just did with a, a gentleman in Oregon, uh, who's looking at the relationship between wolf sites and the populations of coyotes and red foxes, is what does this mean for how we, quote-unquote, manage uh, the landscape, wolves, and cougars? How does this factor into that discussion? Well, that's a great question, and I think that that's sort of the, re the root, if you will, of our research is, now, if wolves are truly impacting mountain lions and wolves are spreading out, they're successfully reintroduced now and are beginning to expand their range. Um, and what does that mean for local mountain lions? And then what does that mean for us who do actually manage for mountain lions um, in most Western states? So I think that it's sort of one of the things that we're learning now is that, yes, wolves impact mountain lions and they do it through influencing where they live, how they live and even how many mountain lions are on the landscape. And if this is true, then will we need to reconsider how we manage them? For instance, um, most Western states it, use a hunting quota to manage mountain lions. So they sort of place a, a number, some might call it arbitrary, some would call it strategic, uh, that is meant to either reduce, maintain, or allow the local mountain lion population to expand. Uh, 
And that's very much true in Wyoming. They have a what they call a source sync stable management style. And if indeed wolves are reducing mountain lion populations in certain areas, it's only logical that we cannot maintain the same hunting quotas in those areas. And we may have to rethink how we look at mountain lions. And I'm talking very much from a management point of view here, but you'll see that the work that we're doing, this sort of the data that we're gathering is is providing quantitative ev- evidence that wolves are impacting mountain lions. And therefore, we must reconsider how we look at mountain lions. And I think it's it's very clear that beyond the national parks, where we are hunting mountain lions, we may need to adjust what we're doing if indeed we want to live with mountain lions for the foreseeable future. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you talk to anyone with an interest in biodiversity and they will say, of course, we want to live with mountain lions. Um, uh, granted, <laughs> you're in the Western United States, so one can never be too sure what the sure attitude enough. will be. It is variable. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and that's something so – I'll tell you very briefly that my interest in wildlife actually stems from coyotes. So I was mm-hmm. a dog person. And when I was working as a journalist, I kind of got a crash course in coyotes when their population started to increase um, in my uh, my hometown where I worked. And I've I spent a great deal of time reading about them, learning about them, working with them. Um, and I work with a couple of different organizations that uh, deal with coyotes. And one of the things I find fascinating about coyotes is that people are always at odds with how they feel about them. But when you look at the evolutionary history of coyotes, our changing the landscape, both the the physical side of it in getting rid of forests and putting up farms and highways and in getting rid of wolf populations, allowed a population of a species to expand where it never had before. And now we're complaining, and I say we as a larger society, about the numbers of this population. And it it does seem surprising to me when I come across something like this, that immediately uh, legislative bodies don't say, okay, we've got to stop what we're doing and reevaluate. Because this is further evidence, to me at least, that our removal of varying species impacts other species and their populations. And in some areas, not all, but some areas, there are very aggressive campaigns against predators. Uh, so how can this perhaps go into that discussion of we've got to take a long, hard look at what we're doing with our predators and what we're doing with our landscape? Sure. I mean, this fits perfectly into exactly what you're talking about in that as we reintroduce top predators or as they spread, that we're, of course, going to see cascading effects. And of course, that's using some of the lingo that I'm sure came up in your coyote interview. And that we're seeing the ecosystems respond. They're dynamic. They're ever-changing. They're, they, there's no such thing as an equilibrium. So things are changing out there as wolves repopulate areas where they've been absent for decades and decades. I think the last one in, in Yellowstone was 1926 or about there. And so these are mountain lions that have never seen a wolf, you know, and uh, and yet something in them remembers them. And so, of course, there's change, just like when what we did with coyotes and and the changes that from removing their 
primary competition as well as creating all sorts of new opportunities for them, as well as putting tremendous pressure on them through persecution. And, you know, one of my favorite theories is this whole super coyote theory that we have created smarter, faster, (laughs) stronger animals through uh, selection because they're the ones that survive and reproduce. And, um, you know, I think that this fits very much into that discussion is, okay, the world is dynamic. We think we can control for certain variables. For instance, mountain lions, we think we can control the mountain lion population. It's actually been shown to be quite true that we, if we are aggressive enough, we can reduce mountain lion populations. That is clear. But that mountain lions are connected to everything else. And what we are clearly unaware of, or at least unaware of in the sense that our management doesn't reflect it, is that everything else is connected to mountain lions. For for instance, if wolves are impacting them, we need to then adjust how we're impacting mountain lions. And just with coyotes, for instance. And so this is, you know, it, it, it supports everything you just said, that you know, the ecosystem is large, it's complex, we do not understand it completely. The, to think that we can continue to manipulate one or two things heavily without an understanding of how everything else is connected to it is naive and, you know, and, and arrogant, to, you know, to put it straight. And, um, you know, it, I think that this story, again, will just re-emphasize what has come up with other species and in other conservation circles is that we need to actually do what we're saying we're doing, which is called adaptive management. We need to stop, reassess, and say, okay, what have we learned? Now let's apply a new management strategy. And most states would, would claim that they are actually practicing what's called adaptive management, meaning they are supposed to stop, look at what's happening, reassess, reinvent management at each turn. And if indeed we were truly doing that, then lessons like the one we're seeing with mountain lions here, with coyotes elsewhere, um, should be reflected in evolving management. And, you know, unfortunately that that's not always the case because we're still stuck in certain paradigms. We, we believe that we can, we can manage ungulates through managing predators, even though the mountain of evidence that suggests we can't is, you know, about to topple and, and drown us. Um, and yet we continue to, to move forward with this idea um, when, in fact, most evidence shows that ungulates, meaning elk and deer and bighorn sheep, etc., are driven by other ecological variables such as weather and snow and forage availability, fire suppression, things like that, rather than predation. But we still believe we should manage predators to aid, if you will, ungulate populations, because that's where our interest is. Well, and that's one of the, it, it would be humorous if it wasn't so upsetting, but out West in Canada, we've got our mountain caribou populations dwindling and they're now reaching endangered levels. Um, and some of the populations have been labeled as such. And the plan of the government of British Columbia, which is our westernmost province, uh, was to come out and kill wolves. Even though their own scientific research published along with this decision shows that the by and large number one factor creating 
concern for caribou is habitat destruction. So rather than do the one thing they could do to immediately protect them, they're deciding to do something that's about 10 steps removed. Uh, and, and I think that that's a twofold thing is one, just to show they're taking action. And two, because it really does appease a lobby group, uh, between your ranchers and your hunters. But, uh, the, the last question I wanted to ask you, and this is something I think I understand, but I, I found very entertaining nonetheless. Your final quote in this article I read is with this new opportunity in three years, we may actually disprove everything we're, th- we think we're learning now. It'll be great. And I find that uh, it tickles me, and I think that's because as a scientist, you're excited at the prospect of proving everything wrong and starting again. Uh, is that accurate? Is that why you seem excited that the new studies that you're starting to undertake may change everything you just learned? Sure. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, as, as someone who conducts science, I, it's hard to convey to folks. A lot of people think that science is a destination. We learn X and it's over. But in fact, it's nothing but a journey. I mean, we're constantly trying to learn more and, and, and often look back at what we did and go, oops, well, that wasn't right. You know, we refine it. And so I was specifically referring to the fact that we are for the first time um, putting out GPS collars on wolves in the same area where we work. So until this point, it's all been VHF colors. And it's not us, it's actually the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. And so we're truly taking on a huge collaborative effort to look at the spatial dynamics between the species. So until now, we can look at sort of coarse questions between lions and wolves, and we were able to do that in this paper. But imagine... In a couple of years, when we have data that says, look, here comes the wolf pack into such and such valley, and there goes the lion, you know, moving out the other side. Or does the lion stay there and just hide in a thick chunk of forest or up in the cliffs? We're going to actually be able to look at simultaneous locations of these animals and have all sorts of answers, if you will, to new questions. And so we might find that Lions are successfully living in between the wolves in a way that we could have only imagined with the, what we have today. So, uh, yeah, we're absolutely thrilled about the possibilities of what we could answer two, three years from now. Um, because I think it will be, we'll have a whole new host of questions that are so much deeper than the ones we have now. And we'll have data that is so rich that I can't even imagine what we'll be able to answer because it's it's just too exciting to think about. To learn more about Dr. Elbrock and his work, visit panthera.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Brad Gates of Gates AAA Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of this program and all our guests for sharing their time. Until next week, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.